welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. My name is Osman Mughal and I am your host today. We had the pleasure to speak to Bernard Ross, Director at the Management Centre, a management consultancy working with charities worldwide. Bernard has written six award-winning books on fundraising and social change. He has advised many of the world's leading NGOs on strategy, including UNICEF and UNHCR. Today's discussion focuses on Bernard Ross's most recent book, which he co-authored with Omar Mahmoud, who is Head of Global Knowledge at UNICEF. Change for Good, Using Behavioural Economics for a Better World. We'll cover the key themes of Bernard's new book, including what is meant by behavioural economics, get into grips with how and why people make decisions, and how can charities use this information to further support their cause. We'll also touch on what can the sector learn from the corporate world who also use these techniques and the ethical considerations the sector needs to understand. We'll touch on how charities measure their own success and impact more effectively so that they can report back to their donors. And we will also touch on what Bernard sees as the key opportunities and challenges facing fundraising and the sector in the next few years. This podcast will provide practical tips and examples given Bernard's vast experience and knowledge of the sector. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast itself. Thank you very much, Bernard. It's really delightful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really Pleasure. excited. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Can you please just first, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, why you became interested in this area of work? That's a great question. So um, I'm a consultant. I've been a consultant for maybe 30 years. Um, But I'm also interested in um, what I've learned over those 30 years. And and, And I think I've become increasingly frustrated, luckily, about if I'm so clever, if we're so clever, why are we not doing rather better? Why, why are we not solving many of the world's big challenges? I mean, some of them were making improvements in child education, blah, blah, blah. But why are we not able to raise more money to do the work we need to do? And I guess I became frustrated maybe three or four years ago looking at saying how much, how much is anecdote in the world of fundraising? And by anecdote, I mean a specific example that people talk about positively. And how much do we actually know? I, I write quite a lot of books. I've written six books. And of course, a book is a great way to say, does this stand up? When you're yes. doing a session, you can get away with, okay, a book, people can actually say, oh, what you said on page 300? That's nonsense. So I, I like books. I don't think we write enough books in the sector. And I got into this by looking for a new thing to write a book about. Brilliant. That's great. And that obviously leads us into your most recent book, which has changed for good, using behavioural economics for a better world, which is an absolute brilliant read. I'm halfway through and I'm really enjoying it so far. Good, thank you. And um, for our listeners, can you just outline some of the key tenets and elements of the book and what you hope to achieve um, by doing that? Because I know that you co-wrote the book with um, Omar Mahmoud as well. I wrote the book with one of the biggest brains on the planet. Yes. So Omar Mahmoud is the global head of knowledge. What a great title or the head of global knowledge yes. at UNICEF. Yes. You know, he, he just spends his time in Geneva 
collecting data from UNICEF and other INGOs looking for big trends, big patterns. He absolutely introduced me to a body of work that's characterized sometimes as behavioral economics. But really it's about decision science. Um, and decision science is combines three things. One is behavioral economics, which is kind of um, how do how do people behave in real world situations when faced with economic choices about buying this product, not buying this product, paying for this, how do, how do they, rather than how they're supposed to behave if they were logical. Another part of it is neuroscience and we, in the last five years, there have been extraordinary developments in the field of neuroscience, largely driven through something called fMRI, you know, a functional magnetic resonance. So we can now see, if I were able to put you into a scanner, I, I could see how you're responding to my words. I could see what chemicals are moving around, what parts of your brain are being lit up in real time like a movie. Now that's really interesting because it means when I show you this image of a refugee or that image of a refugee, these words, I can now track not just the external stuff where your eyes go, whether you flush or not, but I can see what's happening in your head. That's a neuroscience bit. And the third bit is something called evolutionary psychology, which is not new at all but that basically argues as we as we all walked out of Ethiopia yes 200,000 years ago I'm not very clear why you'd leave such a beautiful country to arrive in Scotland but anyway uh, as we all we, we developed some habits which are hardwired into our DNA uh, some of them are about you know as soon as we're born we're looking for a breast please give me a breast I want to suck something but we also learned for example as we walked out of uh, Ethiopia we looked over maybe to the right and we said, is that a stick or a snake over there in the grass? I can't really see. Now, if it's a stick, that would be quite a useful thing. If it's a snake, I probably don't want to tangle with a snake. So I will walk on by because snakes are more dangerous than the benefits. And we, that seems to have hardwired into us um, an evolutionary psychology piece of DNA, which is about avoid risks. And people are risk avoiding as a species. Um, so there are probably about seven or eight of those hardwired in. Um, another one is uh, we're herd animals. We don't like to admit it, but you know we we form a queue outside a restaurant where there is already a queue. Now that derives from as we crossed a river, maybe said, you know what? Why don't you go first, and we'll see if you get across the river safely. Yeah. Um, and if you do, then I'll follow you. But actually, who's going to take the risk first? So these are. Uh, these three things, evolutionary psychology, neuroscience and behavioral economics come together in a body of work called decision science that is informing uh, massively how business is doing work and lots of stuff is, um, if you went to a conventional business marketing conference, maybe half the sessions would be about this stuff. Okay. You go to the IOF, one session, two sessions, yes. we're way behind. Yeah. I'm, I didn't apologize for being critical. It's not a criticism of IOF. No, of it's course. It's a criticism of, as, a, as, a, as a, a discipline, as a business, as an area. We're just, we need to catch up here. So how can our sector, how can the third sector really benefit from some of these ideas that are, some are new, some are not so new? Sure. So how can we really adapt them and mold them to fit what we want to achieve? Well, 
a number in fact we can borrow things almost very directly from conventional business who are using these market but there, there are probably seven or eight maybe ten key principles some of which I mentioned in the book um, that are make it applicable one of them for example is um, normalization or socialization we will tend to do what other people do um, and and either that could be in a in a group in a crowd we will as I said form a line outside a restaurant or um, we will respect you know people that we respect or we think we should respect we tend to follow their behavior so in fundraising terms what that means is in crowdfunding terms means that the more people you can show who are supporting your cause at the point at which the donor the, the prospect comes in contact with it the more likely you are to um, make money now so I've just been doing some work on a crowdfunding campaign yesterday and the guy said oh I've done the website I've got a great video I said that's fabulous but but there's no you know no one has given you need to get 25 people to give yes. before you put the thing live because uh, then and they need to be people who are like the other people you want to give whether that's uh, sexuality gender um, age yeah. blah 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 whatever so the people oh people like me do this stuff I should do stuff another one another technique is called anchoring so anchoring is where you give people a stimulus normally a number that cues them about what an acceptable response would be subconsciously so again as, a, as you know again I was recommending to my friend listen you know if you think if you think lots of the people that who are your target market might be able to give you say 50 pounds as a donation you need to get the um, the 25 people or 30 people you're gonna get to go on up front you're gonna have to give them make get them say please put on 50 quid 55 quid 60 quid so the other people see that that's the anchored number uh, but at the other level so for example I've got quite a famous experiment I did uh, five years ago I'm about to repeat next week okay. when I was in New York I was doing face I did face-to-face -face fundraising for the first time in my life I did it as an experiment I stood yeah. in the street for two days All right. I was pretty rubbish at it to be honest with you um, probably harder than it looks okay it's a lot harder you know you you have to kiss a lot of frogs yes you know? but one of the things I noticed was that when I was standing beside the subway station on 21st street when I actually stood beside the sign with 21 on it when I stopped people and said would you like to make a gift it was for save save children um, would you like me a gift blah 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 uh, oh goodness and here we are at 21 and I would mention 21st street and what I discovered was that the gifts I got there were 17 18 19 dollars whereas when I was standing on another street without a number I was getting 14 15 dollars a month as a regular gift so that that's amazing that means that by simply standing beside a, a sign that has a big number yes. 21 you make more money that's insane yeah it's just anchoring so as it happens i'm going out next week to work with msf Maison Saint Fonti. yes i'm going to do a day's work there again face-to-face -face fundraising uh this time i'm going to stand on 21st street and 42nd street yes and 82nd street right okay and then see and, the difference and see the difference right that's really interesting yeah it is so for me the key thing is or this is not theory people say to me these are not theories these are things that work in real time they're working now people are applying them 
the sector needs to catch up. this um obviously we've spoken a little bit about face-to-face fundraising and crowdfunding how does this relate to um other streams of fundraising like major donors or trust and foundations do the similar principles still apply similar but but you use different uh, lots of these rules i've got you know the the anchoring rule uh the socialization are technically called heuristics um this work was developed by two nobel prize winners a guy called richard thaler who invented nudging and another guy um, called Daniel Kahneman, who won the first Nobel Prize for this, who talks about heuristics. Heuristics are fast rules we have that we're not consciously aware of. And the same way is that if I, I do you play soccer or yes. cricket, whatever. Yes. So if I pass the ball to you, you would, without thinking, probably stop it with your right foot and pass it with your right. Or if I yes. threw your ball, you'd yes. either be right leg. Now, you don't think I am right-handed, right, I'm left-handed. You just, you just do it. You just do it. So these are the heuristics are similar kind of embedded rules where you don't think about it. So for interestingly, for um, major donors, I used to say to people, you know what, don't bother printing out your case for support on paper. That's very old school. Give people, you know, get an iPad and have a movie and click and show people the refugees. Some organisations are doing that. Many organisations doing that. But what I and and I don't want to say that's not a good thing because visual data is important movies can be quite powerful but if I said to you that um, one of the things we know from another part of um, behavioral economics is that if I gave you and I'm handing you now two menus and if these menus were CVs and they were both CVs from exactly the same candidate with the same qualifications I maybe just changed the name and I gave you one on 180 gram paper and one on 80 gram paper, Yes. you would subconsciously, I promise you, rank the 180 gram paper candidate as being smarter, more, you know, and you wouldn't be, because you would be picking up um, uh, what's called sensory transfer. Right. That is, you would believe that because the paper was thicker, this candidate was, you know, that's, hey, your HR people should read that. Yeah. But it also means that if it's just true that if I give you a case for support printed on nice paper, uh, looking like it's well produced, you will see my case for support as being worthier, more prestigious, subconscious. Now, you could say to me, Bam, but don't donors go, yeah, yeah, but you spent a lot of money on that. You can get around that by saying this was sponsored by yes. and get a donor to sponsor or get the, or printed at a discount rate by Jim Smith printers. So that answers that negative question, but you will, yeah. So, so I'm now saying to lots of my clients, I'm doing a big job for an organization committed to building um, a pediatric surgical unit in every country in Africa. It's a hundred million dollar proposition. Yes. Okay, we're doing great business in that because we spent money on making the case for sport look good and feel now importantly feel, feel good, good. Yeah. and people are going wow this is a really worthy cause I probably wouldn't have done that two or three years ago until I wrote the book and learned that that sensory transfer the yes. idea of we pick up same thing in a restaurant again we're sitting in a restaurant here uh, if you give people heavier cutlery in a restaurant they'll think they'll say wow the meal was nicer 
Goodness, what? We are easily gold creatures. Yes. And it also shows that you value the major donor because you're sure. actually prepared um, sure. and you're, you're kind of valuing what they can add to you as an organization and to the beneficiaries. So it shows that, yes, you're well prepared, but you also value them as a person and you've gone out yeah. and done something that you wouldn't normally do if it was an internal meeting, for example. And, and, that, and it's done subconsciously. Now, I don't know if you're going to ask me this later, but... Uh, I think these techniques raise some really interesting ethical issues. Yes, yeah. Because you're then saying, so was I behaving improperly by standing next to that that uh, subway station sign? Yes. If I move to the 42nd Street, am I behaving unethically, manipulatively? Is there a line there? Because because you know the Mars company or the Nestle company they're using these techniques to shift products but if you look for example at the way in which um, you know painkillers were marketed in the US or 30 years ago the way cigarettes were being marketed I mean companies know how to sell stuff and yet I don't believe have the same moral compass as you and I have and we should think about in the same way as we think about, uh, and, and my colleague Omar's answer, so he talks about UNICEF are backed away from poverty porn. You know, the, the, the starving child with the flies in the eyes and this, the ribs and looking miserable. So they moved away from that because they thought that was manipulative and unrepresentative of the, the beneficiary. Are we replacing one evil with another evil? I'm going to leave that decision with you and your listeners because yes. I think it is, uh, you know, when we write a powerful letter, we're trying to manipulate people. Yes. When we stop people in the street, we're trying to manipulate people. There is a line somewhere. There is. And we need to find that line either as individuals or as organizations or perhaps as a sector. And I think you're absolutely right that there is no black and white answer to this, that it can be very complicated and it needs to be assessed on a situation by situation basis but I think as a sector we need to look at our beneficiaries and that should be at the forefront of our minds so your example about the 21st street or 42nd street while our information that we provide the person we're speaking to as long as that is not in any way inaccurate or wrong yes and we're providing them with the correct information to make yeah. a good sound decision then the amount of money they give it is at the end of the day going there to benefit our beneficiaries. It's back to your message. I love to hear you say that refrain. It's yeah. back to how, you know, our moral responsibility is primarily to our beneficiaries and secondarily to our donors. Uh, and can you give some examples? You already touched um, on them earlier, but a few examples of where behavioral economics has been used really well in our sector. So perhaps there's some learnings that listeners can take or perhaps where can we learn from outside the sector because I think as a sector sometimes we can be inward looking and we need to look at the corporate sector for example who have a lot more money who have a lot more funding on these particular issues but what can we learn from the corporate sector that has done, been done very well to improve the way that we engage our donors and our beneficiaries and our supporters I mean interestingly as I, as I can't now walk around a supermarket we're seeing every shelf filled with behavioural economics yes <laughs> uh, you may not have noticed, for example, that um, 
children's cereals. I mean, these are appalling. But you will have noticed that those those products are positioned at adult height, at your height. I don't know if you've got kids. I've not got kids. But they're positioned at your But the, the characters in the front of those um, cereal boxes are looking down right. with big eyes at kids. And that the I've never noticed that. Are, I will, no, no, I will no, try next time. The hands are very often pointing towards a proposition, and the proposition is hardly ever nutritious cereal. I mean, kids, are, but it might say things like "Take your mum and dad to Thorpe Park for free." I mean, it's, it's hardly ever a cereal. So it's hardly ever a food proposition. It's more often a an entertainment proposition. So just noticing that. So that's an interesting. Some interesting stuff about using. Uh, and it's a, it's a technique that Disney developed. They, they added big round faces with big eyes, very baby-like faces, are very attractive to us. Um, you know, and, and if I had a choice between putting a, a puppy on a on a an advert or a, the chief executive, I put the puppy on every time because the puppy, will, I promise, yes. you will do better business. <laughs> Let me give you a couple of shocking, what to me are shocking statistics. Yes. I, was, I was at a big conference uh, about a month ago. There's a fantastic woman there from uh, Airbnb. Fantastic guy, well, fantastic meaning frighteningly clever. Yes. Uh, guy there from uh, Uber. Now you think Uber is really simple. We step outside this hotel, we go into our phone, uh, somebody said, we say, well, I want a cab to go to a Victoria station. We see the little cars, we call one, it comes to us. And at the other end, you're aware that somewhere in, you know, those Uber cars, we can say there's a guy hanging outside the Hoxton Hotel, wants to go to Victoria, who wants this job, and somebody says this job. Okay, so you think that's a very simple transaction. Let me tell you that the guy from Uber, this is a guy from English Uber, has 27 people in his decision science department. Well, okay. 27 people. Yes. Let me tell you that he said every... Every year, I do 17,000 experiments. Now, you think the Uber website is really simple. He's changing the color of the little car. He's changing where your price goes. He's changing the font size. Um, in order to, to maximize your use of Uber over black cabs or whatever, I want you to think, uh, if you had a, if I give you a brilliant insight today and you went back to your boss and said, boss, I want to change the website, how hard would it be to get the tiniest change? You'd have to get 17 sign-offs exactly. from comms and it would take a month to do, blah, blah, blah. You know, so what these guys are doing is testing, 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 tiny nuances. Uh, the one from ABB said, oh, we, we only do 12,000 experiments a year. And again, you think, you know, so these things which look very simple and and even they look quite similar, to, you're not noticing that Uber's changing its website because yeah. they're doing tiny, so it's not about necessarily doing huge things. It's about, and they, I don't know if you know that Uber have changed the shape of the little car. Oh, right, okay. Uh, and changed how quickly it moves along. Because, of course, uh, again, if you know, if you know, Basically, the time difference between you calling a black cab in London or getting an Uber is virtually now. There is a price difference, but the time difference is virtually now. But one of the things we know that Uber has a huge advantage because you get excited. 
watching the little car because you think the little car is real. It's the gamification of it. And that's also similar with like Deliveroo or Uber Eats and, and that same yeah. kind of... So how are Oxfam doing that? I love Oxfam to bits. So if you go to Oxfam's site now, the My Oxfam site, they're using Bit... Not Bitcoin, they're using um, blockchain. The only known use for blockchain as far as I know. If I make a gift, they can show how a consignment... I, I, I did a thing where I made a gift and it got bundled into some concrete that was being used to do some... Uh, uh, to build a well and I could see it moving across Africa not in real time not in sure. a little truck but I could log on it would say Bernard your thing's here Bernard it's got to Mogad issue or it's going out of the port Mogad and that's kind of the same thing and I, I'm thinking that's great you know I don't want to make a gift and then six months later hey Bernard your gift got turned into a well why don't you show me the journey my, the journey of yes. my gift whether it's a vet, no guide dogs to the blind don't do it but Bernard you you bought the puppy yes you know what we're going to train the puppy next week shall I send you a little photo of the puppy being trained I, and I'm going here's look, look at that's my puppy I, now I want to show that to you but they don't I, I don't know that they do I don't give to that cause but could you show me the journey Uber style or Amazon style of my gift or the work versus Nice that you send me a thank you letter. Nice that you give me donor love. But the supporter journey is about how my gift impacted. And it's all of, it's also about those touch points that you have. Like yeah. you said, when you first give, you know, generally you get a thank you. And then in a year's time, you get kind of, you know, what, what we've done um, to support our beneficiaries. I get sent an impact report. And I'm yes. going, okay, like, yeah. I quite wanted to know about my impact a year ago. Yes. And also very often, I think it's because very often that you send me your, you know, the imp, the Action Aid or the Oxfam or the Guide Dogs for the Blind impact report. UNICEF do a beautiful thing for high value donors where they send, um, they send uh, IKEA, the IKEA impact report, the impact that IKEA had. Right. What, 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 the difference, not what UNICEF did, what IKEA did with their gift. Does that make sense? Yes. And, oh goodness, these are not, I'd love to pretend that I was talking about rocket science here and I can see you nodding and kind of going, that is so blindly, numbingly obvious. What? And I, you know what? I'm feeling the same. Yeah. These, this is not rocket science. And there's two things that you mentioned earlier that really stood out to me. And it's, firstly, I think the ability to be flexible and adaptable, like you said, Uber did 17,000 experiments. Um, and it just seems to me that as a sector, sometimes we can be a bit more adaptable and flexible and, you know, change our practices and our policies in order to meet sure. what we want to achieve in the end and not have so much red tape, sure. which I think, I know that that can be a challenge sometimes, but I think it's still important to bear in mind. And I think the second one, and I think this part, this point is really important, is about genuine innovation. Mm-hmm because I've been working in the sector for about five years now and um, I'm a trust fundraiser and often what happens, what tends to happen is if a new funding um, round comes out from a new funder or an existing funder and asks us to put together a proposition that is genuinely innovative, generally the organization's response is let's package something up that we already do and call, it. and call it innovation or call it innovative 
because that would obviously help us in delivering the project. But sometimes we have to take a step back and when we're reviewing big decisions, we need to kind of be genuinely innovative and step outside our comfort zone and try to really address problems without almost think of them that there's no boundaries and see in the best case scenario what we what could we potentially achieve um, because there's organizations across the UK that are doing fantastic work um, but can do even better if they truly innovate and they can put some resource behind that because with innovation you're not necessarily going to get those results within a year or two it may be three to five years but playing that long-term game is really important you've absolutely supported the the importance of the you know so uber is still losing money i mean uber is burning money and industry amazon lost money every year for the first 10 years because they began by thinking they were in the business selling books and then they ended up saying we're just a marketplace for stuff Yes. And the thing that made it, and they began by thinking their key process was shipping things quickly. They end up by saying their key process is saying, oh, this man, you know, people like you like stuff like that. And you go, oh my God, how do you know that? I'm sorry, it's just a piece of very clever software. They just realized they were in a different business. I want to pick up on one thing you think we're slightly moving on a bit from um, uh, some things I don't like. I'm gonna people are gonna hate this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I probably don't like innovation very much because I'm kind of going. Please just be good at some simple things. I mean, yeah. Uber. I you know there's those twelve thousand, seventeen thousand changes are tiny changes. They're just making them often enough to add up to you know. Sometimes people think innovation has to be this huge thing, and I'm going really maybe it doesn't. The second thing is I don't. I think I don't like, it's just my opinion, yes. is that I see quite a lot of sessions now about the importance of failure. And I can't want to say sort of. Something that feels like an excuse for failing. And I, I feel quite a high moral responsibility to say, I don't think our beneficiaries are going, that's fine that you failed. Like, you know, they're going, I'd quite like you to succeed, really. I think I'd prefer that to be replaced with um, experimentation. We do not experiment enough. Now, whether you want to call that innovation or not, but, you know, doing experiments is about trying quick things that you see whether they might work or not, and then tracking whether they work and implementing them. Is that the kind of the idea about failing fast? Yes. So yeah. doing an experiment for a short period of time yeah. so you don't have to wait till the end to get that. So we're doing quite a big thing that we do, a bit of praise for the Arts Council of England, not an organisation often praised. They've just given us some money to run the largest field experiment in the world with arts organisations across the UK. We've got 12 arts organisations, some very big ones like the Royal Opera House. It's a quite small one, it's like a thing called Handlebars, which is a little theatre company who cycle from place to place doing Shakespeare in parks. Uh, and we're, we're putting money into doing a whole series of experiments around about collection boxes, around about... Um, uh, video DMs around about face-to-face select. so in a, in a museum you'll be approached by a volunteer you'll be approached by a staff member and you'll be approached by um, uh, a, a professional face-to-face solicitor from an agency yes. and we're comparing it when you come into the museum which of those three things works best right. we're 
testing every imaginable kind of static collection box, putting it at the front of the museum, the back of the museum, in the middle of the museum, with a picture on, without a picture on, with these ones. So we're doing a big six-month experiment testing lots of different things to see, um, yeah, I, what data can we collect about uh, which of those approaches work best. We're doing a, a seminar and a book about that. That'll be another book to buy. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I look realistic. forward to reading that one as well. Taking it back to organisations, given your vastly experience in the sector, you've got a number of years experience of working with different organisations, um, small and large. What would your advice be to trustees or senior management in how to incorporate behavioural economics into their work? Because I think for us to really delve into the detail and really get a strong grip on this, that needs to come from senior management to have a strong focus and direction. So what would you, what would your advice be, given that some senior management um, people might be quite hesitant to try new things, um, maybe because they don't have enough funding or because there may be other barriers towards it? Um, you could buy my book. Yes. Uh, the profits from which, all of which go to Medsumsum Frontier, just to say that people buy the book, that's a great thing. All the profits are going to make to support their important work. Um, uh, so, I, you know, some of it is about is about whether you read my book or another book. Other books are available. I understand. Sure. Uh, but I mean, people that books are a bit old fashioned. I'm really sorry. Books are great with uh, yes. fabulous technology. There's nothing like a good book. Nothing like a good, you know. Another book I'd recommend be would be Nudge by Richard Thaler. Thinking Fast and Low by Daniel Kahneman. I mean, there are some some great books out there. To, to learn about the range of areas where it or go to a seminar, lots of seminars about this stuff, go and talk to UNICEF who are doing a lot of this stuff. I mean, so, Médecins Sans Frontier and UNICEF are doing more of this stuff than anywhere else. They're big players, they're very successful. I mean, uh, MSF is doing seven or eight or nine to one. That's an amazing ROI. They're partly, partly doing that because they're applying these techniques globally. You know, they're, they're paying the, who's, who's doing the smart stuff yeah. would be my question. But I also want to say that one of the things I think that's really important about this work is that um, this body of work rather is actually applying it to fundraising is a wee wee part of what we're doing. It's very powerful in campaigning. It's very powerful in advocacy. Uh, UNICEF, again, as I said, apply it to uh, sexual health getting people to make good sexual health choices. Uh, um, uh, some charities are applying it to child protection policies. Some people, uh, poverty charities are applying to how, I mean, poor people, interestingly, they often make really rubbish economic decisions. I mean, the whole scandal of, um, you know, payday loans. When people would be saying, oh, I need to borrow 200 quid, but it's okay, I only have to pay it back at five pounds a week for the next year. And you're saying, but that's 5,000%. And, you know, people under what's called cognitive load, a bit of mental pressure, find it really hard to do the maths. So they'll sign a deal like that without working. Well, behavioral economics shows you how to make things manageable so that people understand the numbers. So, so this body of work is not just useful in fundraising. You can actually get your colleagues involved by saying, 
This helps with your campaigning, it helps with your advocacy, it helps with your comms, it helps with your your service delivery. You know, this is a body of work. The World Bank use it. You know, I mean, people are using this. And that's so important that you mentioned that it can you know, not only be used in fundraising, yeah. but in other areas, because that's more of an organizational approach exactly. and the mindset of the organization. So we were tackling this as an organization and therefore that filters down. But also different departments will work with one another with the same mindset and that's absolutely crucial. My other question, which is going a little bit off the topic of behavioral economics for the moment, and since I've got you here, I really want you to kind of make the most of it, is what do you personally see as the key opportunities or challenges in the next five years for our sector? I know that's a pretty broad question, so no, it's a great question. Uh, for me, okay, so, so my opinion on the challenge for the next one is absolutely how do we up our game? Yes. Because we seem to be doing lots of the same old, same old, and, and we go to conferences and we hear about. I hate the phrase best practice. Yes. Best practice means to me average. You know, uh, I'm really sorry, and, and average is not good enough. I don't know if you've heard of two famous historical figures. There was Alexander the Great, yes. and then there was his brother Alexander the Average. Okay, <laughs> and we're Alexander the Average too. We're obsessed with benchmarking, which I also hate because benchmark just says, "Are we? Do- oh my God, we're doing averagely well. We're doing a bit better than average. We need to transform our performance. So, how do we transform our performance? The second thing I think is um, how do we increase the amount of philanthropy? I, it distresses me hugely that income is going up. You know, actually, when you look at lots of charities, income is growing, but numbers of donors are falling. In this country, throughout Europe, I've just been in Spain and in, and in Holland, num- numbers of donors are falling. In the US, numbers of donors are falling. So you have the two things of money going up and numbers of donors going down. I'm really sorry, I'm not in the fundraising business, I'm in the philanthropy business. I'm in the business of, philanthropy stands for love of man. I want you to, I want more people to care about other people. I want more people to volunteer. I want more people to help old ladies across the road or old men across the road. I want more people to stand up on the tube for pregnant women. That Those are philanthropic acts. And I fear that we are failing to increase the total amount of philanthropy we're obsessed with raising our income and we can do that by focusing on legacies and high value donors which is and trust and foundations which is where the money is that's not good enough it's not just about the income it's about increasing the amount of especially in the UK where we are so bitterly bitterly divided as a nation and then I guess the third thing is how do we take advantage of this the huge opportunity there is which is the bequest opportunity, which we're... I read the other day, I think, that the... Um, if you take the money raised in any one London marathon, in any given year, the value of bequest or legacy income is 40 times that. So in, you'd have to run 40 London marathons yes. to equal the two... I'm not sure if that figure's exact, but it's, it is of that order. Okay. Yeah. By all means, have your events team organise the London Marathon, but why have you not got 20 people in your legacies team? It's where the money is. And it's also 
going to our point that we mentioned earlier in the podcast about impact yeah. and the end result. Yeah. It's all leading towards that. And one final question is what do you think the sector is doing really well that can, we can kind of build on in the next couple of years? What areas do you think this, the sector's really been transforming? Because the sector has moved quite a far yeah, in the last yeah, five yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the one thing that I see as been a fantastic thing to see happening is uh, the whole business about donor care, stewardship, all of that stuff. And, and massive respect to uh, Giles Pegram, uh, Ken Burnett, two very old school guys. I'm a huge fan of those two people. And my colleague Angela Clough, who is also, you know, who's been I. And the three of them have between them um, driven through the importance of donor care and, and beyond donor care, donor love is the phrase that I hear more now. And we're much better, you know, it's beyond stewardship, beyond simple, it's about saying I really care about you and yes. in a reciprocal way, please care about me and the people I work with. That, that's that been one bright spot in another fairly bleak political and social landscape over the last yes. five years. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Bernard. It was a real pleasure talking to you and I hope we can do this sometime in the future as well. A Thank pleasure you so talking much. to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So a big thank you to Bernard for his time, enthusiasm and sharing his knowledge of the sector with us today, particularly breaking down his new book, Change for Good, Using Behavioural Economics for a Better World. We touch on a range of issues, particularly understanding how we as human beings make decisions and how anyone involved in the field of social change can help individuals or groups, i.e. our donors, choose to make a positive difference. Bernard also spoke candidly about the importance for us as a sector to keep on learning, innovating and developing in order to serve our beneficiaries more effectively and provided me and you with practical tips on how we can implement this in our organisations. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you learned as much as I did throughout this podcast. If you have any ideas or suggestions that you would like us to cover on our Charity Chat podcast in the future, please get in touch on info at charitychat.org.uk. That just leaves me to thank our sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksamit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images on our website, and Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout the podcast and are playing us out now. Music